Welcome to episode 40 of Girl Take the Lead, where each week we explore womanhood and leadership. This week we'll explore the book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by two sisters, Emily and Emilia Nagoski. Joining me is my guest, Tony Morris, Executive Director, Experience and Engagement at John Muir Health, an integrated system of doctors, hospitals, and other services in the Bay Area. We hope we've saved you some time by sharing our key takeaways of this very important book and that you connect with us and know we're all in this together and perhaps see yourself in our stories, particularly around the pandemic. Hope you enjoy the listen and thanks for being here. Welcome to Girl Take the Lead. Thank We're you. So excited to have you here and to discuss this amazing book. So um, before we get started, though, you want to introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Tony Morris, and I am have a background in a lot of leadership work. Historically, I did a lot of work in new startups, so I um, opened new healthcare organizations. So. Um, in Utah, I actually was had the good fortune to open a brand new medical campus that included a surgery center, medical offices, and um, and we also had an imaging center. And I'd never done that before, but was hired and um, got um, and it was a really awesome experience. And from that, I actually got recruited to do the same thing for a surgical hospital in California. And that's what brought me to California. In all of that work, my favorite, my favorite part was the people part. So in, in a startup, you have to um, build relationships and you have to hire the staff and you have to create kind of the, the culture. And I just loved all of that. And so I later went into consulting and did some work around engagement and um, patient experience and that sort of thing, and then landed kind of where I'm at right now um, at John Your Health doing that work exactly. And that's where our paths crossed. And listeners, it's no mistake. We sat next to each other at a leadership meeting. Both Tony and I had like over our commute to get to Walnut Creek. We exchanged book recommendations. <laughs> If you remember, it was so yeah. fun to have like, oh, have you read this? Have you heard that? You know, so we were definitely partners for a long time when it came to reading. And so no mistake, here we are reading this great book together, given the number of people that you have probably seen in healthcare burn out. I just knew I wanted to do this book with you and like nobody else would be better to do it with because you have seen what has gone on in healthcare with regard to burnout. Well, um, I would say, yes, I have seen a lot of that. And in that, I think as they describe in the book as women a lot, we take that on, right? And we, we're in the process of burning out because we're trying to help people burning out. And um, it can be overwhelming. And I think also with what we've all been through, it was, um, there was a lot of heartache because you didn't know how to help people. You didn't, I mean, um, so this, this taking care of yourself, this book about how we um, move through stress and the cycle was, was really timely, I think. I think so too, because 
um, I know that even I, a lot of my listeners know that I worked in healthcare for the eight years at John Muir Health, but, um, you know, and I was not frontline, but it, it affected everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, our hearts were with the people on the front line. We were trying to, you know, support as much as we could, um, you know, in a crisis, managing crisis, you know, managing death on a huge scale. It was like so much, so much. And um, not only managing um, that stress, but um, you're taking care of patients and seeing that, but you're also scared to death for your own family and your mm. own um, you know, what does this mean? And I don't want to take it home to them. And am I putting them at risk? And at one time, we actually had um, booked some hotel rooms and had a whole space for that for any of our employees that were working the COVID units and didn't want to expose their families. And yeah. so it's, um, it's so big. And this book was a little bit different than I thought, because I thought, they would say, oh, well, this is the solution to burnout. But actually, it was quite a journey through mm-hmm. the process of all this. It's just not so easy. It's just not mm-hmm. one component. Maybe we'll begin first by, in the book, they kind of make the point that historically, burnout has included emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and decreased sense of accomplishment. Some of the statistics that the authors bring us are that about certain professions, kind of like what we're talking about, (laughs) 20 to 30% of teachers in America have moderately high to high levels of burnout. Similar rates are found among university professors. (laughs) My new Uh chosen field. (laughs) And international humanitarian aid work. Among medical professionals, burnout can be as high as 52%. Mm -hmm. Nearly all the research on burnout is on professional burnout, specifically people who help like teachers and nurses. But a growing area of research is parental burnout. When I read that, I went, oh my gosh, it's a, it's a perfect storm, right? If you're a healthcare worker and you're a parent and you're, you know, it's like, it's all coming together on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, and then they made the point that research has found it, it's the first element in burnout, emotional exhaustion, that's most strongly linked to negative impacts on our health, relationship and work especially for women. Exactly the point you were just making, Tony. That's mm-hmm. like right there. Yeah. If we have that as our beginning statement and what's happening, they take us through the first point is that we have to differentiate stress from stressors. That was very interesting mm-hmm. to me because it all seemed like stress to me, right? <laughs> just like yeah. one. Yeah we don't make the distinctions so much as what is the stress and what is the stressor. For our listener, the stress, she makes the distinction that stressors are what activate the stress response in the body. And stress is the neurological and physiological shift that happens in our body when we encounter one of these threats. And we see threats as anything, well, like she uses less tangible internal stressors, 
things like self-criticism, body image, identity, memories, and the future. Was and the pretty, past. And the past, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty interesting, I thought, to kind of break it up. I. What I, I really found it interesting too. I think when, when we think about stressors and, and they, and she also refers to historical, like the fight, flight, or freeze um, in response to danger. The thing about what we live, the environment that we live in today is a lot of the stressors aren't recognizable. We don't even see them coming. We just feel the effects of them, right? And and sometimes when we can um, recognize that something's there, um, we go in our heads and say, I don't have time for this, or I just have to toughen up, or um, we put it another stress on ourselves in responding to it. So it just, it builds even in just that initial phase, not just over time. And the it's the building, it's the hanging on to it. It's the part that we get stuck in. Yeah, yeah. And that notion of being stuck, um, she said it so well. She said it, it, it kind of just stays in our body and ferments and just keeps <laughs> making us sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I went, ooh. So the point she makes is we have to complete the cycle. She offers any kind of physical activity like breathing like getting the movement in the body and I know like when I do the tree pose in yoga mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. arms go up and I'm I'm open and my chest you know comes out a bit that that motion of being open and breathing definitely helps me I I have a thing where I like to similarly like standing and I imagine, you know, they tell you about like you've got like you're a puppet and you've got the string on the top of your head and it's pulling, lifting you higher and it's kind of stretches your diaphragm and all that. And you can breathe more yeah. fully. And then I've also had a, 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 actually a therapist in, in my past life that used to tell me, um, visualize the space between your heart and your back shoulders, that space in between and breathe into that. And it's amazing how you feel a shift in, in just your energy and everything else. So yeah. breathing is huge, I think. Yeah. She says uh, the other things they offer are positive social interaction, laughter. I thought was really good, <laughs> mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. um, affection. And then in affection, you and I talked about this before, a six-second kiss or a 20-second hug. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems like a long yeah. hug for 20 yeah, it, seconds. Yeah, 20 seconds sounds like short, but when you're thinking about a hug for 20 seconds very intentionally, um, but I'll tell you, matching that up with humor or laughter. Uh, so my partner and I decided to try that and the, the six second kiss and then the 20 second hug, it was, it, as it lingered, we just started laughing, right? It just, it was so, it was funny because it was not natural or it was right. because it was such an intentional um, thing we were doing. Um, so it kind of accomplished two things for us because we did get that, that touch benefit, but also it made us laugh. So that felt good too. 
Yeah, there were also the a big old cry. And there's mm -hmm. definitely times when I watch a particular movie, I know that will just help me mm -hmm. just purge. And I, I find now that I kind of refer to those big old cries as a change of energy. Mm. Like yeah. from it being this uh, clogged up emotion, now we can let it go. It's like it's coming out. Mm -hmm. the tear ducts and the nose and the eyes and then creative expression mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that was I think her last suggestion there are there mm -hmm. other things that you do yeah I, th I think one thing that I found is is just having a safe space to talk you know I'm a I think a lot and, and figure things out a lot through talking with it over with people. And so having a, a confidant or someone that you can talk about what you're dealing with, that's just a really good listener and being that for other people. Um, I think that just helps me process. And, um, and I, you know, usually the person that I'm able to do that with, it's, it's a process for them also. So I, I think when you can get it outside of you and you can look at it instead of carrying it with you yeah. and just, you know, pushing it down and not dealing with it now. I know with my husband and I, we walk every day a mile and a half. Mm. And during that time, it gives us a check-in, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. we we just talk to the crows, but other times, we, mm -hmm. you know, it gives mm -hmm. us like, you know, I've been, you're feeling very sad or, you know, trying to get at what is going on. The other thing that she talked about later in the book, and I don't think, I don't know that it was one of the ways of getting, moving through the stress, but she talked about gratitude and, you know, we hear there's so much in the, um, in media and in, um, you know, a lot of the podcast people that I listen to and stuff, they talk about the importance of gratitude. I think gratitude and meaning. So I think about when we were talking about healthcare workers in particular, but also teachers and, and others like that, the work that they choose to do when they become a healthcare worker, healthcare giver, or a teacher is that they want to make a difference. They want to feel like they're helping others and, and contributing. And through the last this pandemic, that's been harder and harder to experience because they worked so hard. I mean, a lot of the teachers, they couldn't be there for their students because now they're virtual and it's just not the same. Mm -hmm. Or nurses and doctors, um, they were doing everything they could and patients were still dying and are not getting better. And so all that meaning, you know, they saw more death than they've ever seen. Um, and never ever expected to see in their careers, I'm sure. Um, and there was no um, recovery time in between. And so you're working that hard with all your knowledge and experience to help people get better and it's not working. And so mm -hmm. where is that fulfillment that you're getting of what your purpose is? Right. And I think that has added to their burnout. The, the, the concept in the book about the monitor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the monitor is our internal way of making it worthwhile. You know, is this worthwhile to continue mm -hmm. or should I leave? Maybe the backlash we're experiencing that the exit, it became very clear to people that, you know what, it's time to leave. The monitor will tell you when it is time, when you're done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
I thought that was kind of interesting in terms of it's an internal self. Yeah. People can't tell you that it's you and your yeah. own monitor. If you compare yourself to other people who, oh, look at them, they're, you know, they're, they're still going and they're still doing it or whatever. But your monitor is saying, I am so done right now. I cannot do this again. Mm-hmm. Not paying attention to the monitor. Again, we, sometimes the monitor's telling us, screaming at us that this is, you, you've got to do something different. And we're just saying, I'm supposed to do this. And people are depending on me. And whatever our reasons right. are, we right. just have to, we just keep going, which again, we're not, we're not moving through the cycle of stress. We're, right. we're creating more. I, I think the heart of it all came down to that human giver syndrome. Mm, yeah. Now, I thought that would be like, like overdoing it, you know, like something about, about that, but actually the human giver syndrome she, they talked about is that we're kind of born with it mm-hmm. and yeah. it's very cultural for us. She had these points. Do you suffer from human giver syndrome? Symptoms include believing you have a moral obligation That is, you owe it to your partner, your family, the world, or even to yourself to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. Okay, there's two more. There's a few more bullets here. Believing that any failure to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive (laughs) makes you a failure as a person. Believing that your failure means you deserve punishment even going as far as to beat yourself up. And the last one, believing these are not symptoms, but normal and true ideas. Mm. Yeah. So I want to clarify something or ask you. Um, so when she says we're born with it, um, she's, she's referring to that it's natural for us to give and want to care for each other, not the giver syndrome aspects of it those are learned right correct that, that's yeah. what I, I took from it too it it made it seem more cultural to me mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. the distinction between that and being of service having a higher cause was you know the way to handle the human giver syndrome mm-hmm. so you're not mm-hmm. stuck mm-hmm. you know um i i remember being in high school and my mom telling me how to get a guy mm. and you had to be pretty you had to be calm what, what, would, what was the list there pretty <laughs> calm generous and attentive right mm-hmm. and and my dad added in that you needed to know sports <laughs> and that this was how you were gonna get a guy you know mm-hmm. and that was like in the 60s um so thank god I remember when the girls came home from middle school and they're like, you know, these guys in my class, they're really dumb. I am much smarter than they are. And I'm like, way to go girls. That's right. That's right. You know, keep going, keep going, you know? Um, but it was just how they, how we're kind of, we learn to be in the world differently. Well, and I think that, um, you know, for our parents, especially, um, 
the role for women was mostly to be in the home, right? Yeah. Still, that are they were um, there were expectations, and there were the kind of work that women could do were suited for, so that they could still be homemakers and mothers and and all of that. So there was um, an expectation of that, and I think. Um, so, you know, how to get a man or how to get a guy was related to that. And, yeah. and from that framework and um, gosh, I think I, I feel like I have come so far from that, <laughs> but, but also wish that I, I wish my mom could have experienced what I've experienced. Um, I was recently, this is a little bit off topic, but I was recently at a women's retreat and had the best experience with all these like-minded women. And we just, it felt so empowering and there was, you know, they're so accomplished and it just kind of gave me this boost of energy. And I, I remember thinking, I wish my mom could have experienced this mm -hmm. when she was alive because it is so powerful. And it, um, and I feel like she just didn't have the opportunities, you know, she didn't know what she was missing, I guess. And um, I want that for my daughters and my grandkids, you know, to, yeah. to experience. So um, even though we talked about in when she taught everything she talks about in the book, there's still so much um, discrimination and where women still have to do twice as much a lot of times to get the same recognition if they get it at all or equal pay and things like that. Um, we have come a long way and we have a long way to go. Yeah. Well, the whole chapter on the game is rigged is pretty much about the patriarchy and it's not in our heads, you know, yeah. that gaslighting happens. Things will be done to make you smaller. Yeah. I think by giving it a voice and by giving it a whole chapter to me was like, all right, you know, and, and there's this part about signs you need to recharge in the bubble of love. When you have been gaslit, uh, and for the, our listener, in case that's a new term, gas gaslighting, it's your fault. It's on you. Or you're imagining it's not real and you must be crazy. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think that, yeah. When you feel not enough, like almost every day, sometimes <laughs> mm -hmm. when you're sad, when you're boiling with rage, I, I think the love bubble and that idea, like whether it's talking with somebody or having a, that safe place you go, when you know these things are happening for you. I know for me, that I need to almost like slow down, time out, give myself a time out. Maybe I just zone out for a while mm -hmm. so I can get in touch with the feelings because I've been moving so quickly and I'm a person who kind of brushes through the feeling like, or eats over the feeling. Like, I don't like that feeling. I, mm -hmm. I want to just have happy feelings. I don't know. How about you? Well, I think that that um, I... I have that experience as well. And I think that sometimes we don't even notice what we're feeling because we're moving so fast. And I think for me, one of the things I, I really try to work on, and, and it's, it's a constant thing for me to practice and work on, is to be aware of what I'm feeling and to pay attention to it. Because in fact, in, in some of the coaching that I've done, when I, when I listen to people tell their stories, I encourage them to stop take a breath and feel what they're feeling. 
and, um, and honor it because it's a message and um, our bodies are super smart and our intuition's very on point if we will pay attention. And I think because of our culture and because of um, sort of the expectations of women in general, we, we kind of just move on, keep moving. Um, and we don't give ourselves that, that time to, to learn about ourselves and, and really pay attention. Easy to see how it gets layered up, you know, like everyone else's expectation or, and, and I know we don't do it, but, you know, we're smart people and we like parents trying to do everything for their kids and for their careers and for, so their future. And so they've got money and then they've got security. And then, you know, it's like, who can be present mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you've got this focus on that being so yeah. important? Isn't it interesting how, you know, when I think about growing up and conversations with my friends and if we had if there was something about our parents or our teachers or people older, we would say, man, when I have kids, I'm going to do it differently. And I wouldn't, you know, the idea is to get better, right. To do better than previously. And so hopefully we do learn things from our parents of what to, what's good and keep it going and what to do differently. That's better. But we also learn, sometimes we go to an extreme. And I think, I, I think about when I was a kid, and I remember thinking I never had the opportunity to get to play the piano or learn, you know, those things because we couldn't afford a piano or lessons. And, you know, I, when my kid, when I have kids, I'm going to, you know, give them those opportunities. And, and then we have a, a generation where the kids have every opportunity, right? They've got them in soccer. They've got them in piano. They've got them in <laughs> voice lessons and acting and, and they're exhausted. The kids are exhausted and they don't really have a space to feel, is this something I like or don't like? And there's so much expected of me. And so we've kind of got another extreme. Yeah. And, and so what are we creating in that human giver syndrome, you know, relating back to that? Are we creating unrealistic expectations that um, they're not able to really know themselves and, and process? And yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point. Last thing, which um, this idea of the mad woman in the attic. Yeah. Oh, my that God. That was so interesting. Oh, my God. Um, so how it goes, dear listener, is um, she has this. I'll just give you a bit of an intro. Each person's mad woman is different. For you, maybe she's more like a shadow following you around, a perpetual reminder of what you're not, or a spindly creature lurking under the bed until you put on some jeans that feel tight, or send a text you immediately wish you hadn't sent, or as one friend of ours put it, a whiny, annoying brat of a six-year-old who thinks she knows everything and will not give me strength shut up unless I take deep breaths for her then she goes quiet mm. <laughs> God. Yeah. Yeah. and and I kept and you know uh, there's this little exercise on you know trying to uh, to write out a little bit about getting to know your mad woman I, I want to read just a couple more paragraphs because I think it gives uh, just a bit more context 
So again and again, women describe their mad woman as an uncomfortable, even unpleasant person. And they describe her fragility, vulnerability, or sadness. This is kind of cool. Yeah. Because, so what did you, yeah, go ahead. What did you, what, did you come up with what your mad woman looks like? Well, I think when I think of it being a mad woman, it's kind of like this, see, you're really not going to achieve. Mm -hmm. See, you're really not going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, mm -hmm. And you're, you know, the chubby little kid. And then I have the mad child. And the mad child is like, see, you, you're the overweight gordita in space. You will never fit they you will never achieve you will never be as good as they are mm -hmm. so they're kind of related but yeah how, how about you where did you end up? um similarly i i um i mine is sort of the um imposter syndrome kind of mad woman where wait till they find out you know you're 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 going to be found out and anytime i regret something that I did or feel like, oh, that was a stupid thing to say, or I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have done that. My mad woman comes up and says, they're going to find you out. You know, you're, you're just not smart enough. You're not as, as um, good or smart or whatever, talented or skilled as you, as you're pretending to be. Mm. And, and they're going to find you out. I have a question for you, if you ever experienced this. So, you know, there's, there's, certain there's a few people in my life that I really respect and I just really look up to and if I um if I if somehow I like don't feel as connected with them on a um I don't know like I feel like they're not noticing me or that there's I I automatically go what did I do wrong what you know or um oh they're not gonna value me and I really want them to because I, I I so admire them and then almost always at some point down the road I find out why I wasn't having that contact with them and it had nothing to do with me but I totally made it about me and my either something I did or didn't do or whatever do you ever have that experience absolutely I'm getting better about seeing that people's reactions or what they do is their own mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I have to just give them space to be mm -hmm. in you know and that if I have a few other things going on like like she talks about if I if you're not sleeping well mm -hmm. if you're you know everything seems to look darker when I'm and and more stressful when I'm not in that place of taking care of my, well, I haven't walked I, I don't feel physically well you know, right. whatever, some of those things will make me very susceptible to some of those ways that I see the motivations of others, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that are definitely about me and not their own thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Because you're, you're kind of describing how we, we have expectations of ourselves. And when we're, we're not feeling 100%, um, of course, we're not going to see our best selves. Right. We're we're um, we're seeing 
what's weak about us or what's um, not at its best. And so we see that reflected in others and it just feeds it when it's really, to your point, it's, it's really about them and what's going on with them has nothing to do with us, but because we're in that space, yeah. we internalize it and kind of put it on ourselves. You know, and circling back to it, where we started when we opened up, the pandemic didn't give people time to rest. Mm, no. We, no. Just, we just had to keep going. Yeah. Especially and, the, the and, frontline workers. And not, a, and, and there was no, no, no one knew what, you know, there was no answers. There was nothing that we could hold on to for um, hope or security right. or whatever. It was just, there was, it just seemed to be more unknown. And the more we time passed, the more unknowns there were and the worse it seemed to get. And, and we still don't have an answer. And um, I think, yeah, that was just a, such a tough time. And it, you know, in many ways still is. We weren't used to handling trauma in that form mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where it was constant and there was no break in it. It was more and more and more and more. It just especially as that curve kept growing and the number of hospitalizations and the number of, you know, the mortality rate, I guess it is that human giver part of us that we're looking and going, what can I do? What can I, it's got to stop. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got to mm -hmm. do something. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. everybody tried their best to do mm -hmm. as much as they could do. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember um, either reading or hearing um, podcasts or something about people that actually did well during the pandemic. And I think it comes back to um, some of the things we've talked about is for people who um, didn't need to have all the answers at the time or didn't feel the need that it's up to them to fix it or to do something about it, they were able to say, this is not something I have control over, but I'm going to pay attention to what I do have control over. And that's, you know, at how I interact with my family or, or wh whatever it is. And those are the people that really um, kind of saw a silver lining, if you will, in the experience, because they paid attention to what they had control over and didn't focus on what right. they didn't have control over. And I, I think for me, that was where I, when I would focus on, I need to help my colleagues at work, and I don't know what to do. And I should be able to do this. And I don't know how and what did they I don't even know how to find out what they need. And um, when I was in that space, I was suffering the most, you know, yeah. that was the hardest time. But when I could go to a place of, you know, I can't control everything. I don't know the answers, but these are a few things that I do know, and I'll work on those. Yeah. I was in a much better um, state of mind and experience. I think a lot of people felt that way too, Tony. I mean, even our communities and the way they embraced healthcare workers at the hospitals you know, with signs and, oh, it still makes me cry. You know, yeah, it was just yeah. such an outpouring of support and love and connection, mm -hmm. which is what she talks about, you know, too, that yeah. is so needed is this connection of people to people. Like it makes mm -hmm. it bigger and worthwhile when you have that. We have to prioritize um, I think connection more too. I think we, a lot of isolation happened in throughout the pandemic and it created a, a different kind of isolation. Um, and I think 
reminding ourselves the importance of connection. And when we experience it, we feel that difference. And they say for resilience, that's, that's the other side. That's what activates our resilience is, is building connections and, and feeling like um, we have others in our life that relate to us, um, that we can work together on things. Those are all things that help us to be more resilient. Well, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. Oh, thanks. Anything else that you would like to share with the listeners? Um, you know, I, I think that um, the only, the only other thing in the book that she talked about, the most important thing you can do to move through the cycle is do something. Don't, don't just sit in whatever your stress is, but do something. And um, I think that's a really good mantra. And I'll put as many of these little worksheets that I can on our um, Facebook page and see if I can't work them in somehow because they're such good little worksheets for us to, to kind of remind ourselves how to get out of some of these things, how to, I know for me, I have to write. I have to do some automatic writing to find out what the emotion is that I'm dealing with. It just, you know, I can't recognize it sometimes. I'll go, mm-hmm. oh, you know, that's why I did the episode on envy because I went, oh, there's envy. Mm-hmm. That's why mm-hmm. I'm suffering. Okay. Yeah. Maybe yeah. there's other things, you know, that I keep looking at. Yeah. You mentioned in a previous um, podcast of yours, the um, Byron Katie work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing you can do, right? That's an ac- action you can take when you're stuck and um and move through it so um well we could go on for a few more days with this topic (laughs) (laughs) that's for sure thank you tony for joining us and and listeners we hope you enjoyed this thanks talk to you soon bye bye Thank you for listening today and we sure hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did can you let us know by leaving a comment where you listen to your podcasts or on our group facebook page girl take the lead you can leave a comment there on our website or by sending us an email to yo at yocanny.com tell us who your mad woman is we'd love to hear about her we've got some good stuff we're working on including some more great books including a discussion on the imposter syndrome, which came up in this episode. More to come on that and some other juicy topics. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.